Hello and welcome to the Able to Care podcast. Uh, it's me, the host, Andy Baker. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about autism in girls. So first off, I'll welcome my co-host, so Nadine. Hi. <laughs> and also a special guest that we've got joining us this week, which is Alex Bond. So hello. Alex, hello. Uh, so Alex is a museum curator. I know I wouldn't be able to say that word right. So a museum curator, can't do it, um, who got diagnosed with autism only well, a year ago today, you said? Yeah, yes. a year ago this week. A year yeah. ago this week. And also her daughter was diagnosed with autism in 2019. So we thought it was a wonderful opportunity to bring Alex along today to talk about the subject of autism autism in girls. Um, we decided to kind of run this as a podcast and we're doing a bit of a kind of a special promotion and trying to raise awareness on this subject a little bit. We've got a ABLE training, we've got a new course coming out related to this uh, to try and raise some awareness and understanding uh, around a subject that is um, often misunderstood. And I think both Nadine and I feel quite passionate about it, of kind of trying to raise awareness about this. So, um, right, well, first off, thank you very much for joining and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> That's all right. So, well, first off, I think it's probably worthwhile, um, maybe the three of us kind of discussing as far as what we're aware of, as far as the differences in or why it's worthwhile having a, a podcast and talking about a subject of autism in girls. So uh, if it's OK, we'll, we'll start with kind of Nadine's kind of perspective, because I think you kind of led the way a little bit on wanting yeah. to develop this course and, and wanting to do this subject. So do yeah. you want to start us off? Well, obviously, we do a lot of autism awareness courses. We do like the half day, four days. And the, within the courses, it does stipulate that it's quite more difficult to get a diagnosis within girls it's not something we really overly expand on is it within no. the courses we we generally talk about the masking and that girls are generally better at mimicking other people and those sorts of things but we didn't really delve into too much as to why it is often not diagnosed or misdiagnosed with something else and statistic wise there is more and more older ladies or older females that are going for those diagnoses. And it was just an area of interest in having done a bit of training on it myself, a bit of CPD. I just, I was just quite fascinated with how often it is missed. And when going through the diagnosis process, how it's not actually catered for, for the female gender. And yeah. um, so I was quite shocked about that. So it's just left, led me down a bit of the, of the garden path and I'm, I'm just so intrigued by it, to be honest. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's one of the um, one of those things with with autism. There is obviously I've, I've come across quite a few girls with a diagnosis of yeah. autism through in the health and social care, um, but they tend to have those quite severe traits or the, the more kind of obvious traits of autism um, and commonly associated with learning disabilities at the same time. So I think it's the the autism in girls that what would have been Aspergers potentially within boys that then tends to be being the one that's kind of missed commonly within girls and and misdiagnosed a lot of the time. So do you want to tell us a little bit? about your kind of journey and and how you maybe starting off because I think it was your daughter I was obviously your daughter first that started the journey wasn't it so yeah. yeah that's right so my journey with it really started when Ava was quite young she's now 12 years old um by the time she was four it was apparent that she perhaps was a little different to other children of her age particularly other girls of her age and as she got older, some of the traits when she was very small that we'd said, oh, she's so wild, she's so free, she's such a free spirit, she's got so much energy, that actually those those traits that you would assume would start to calm down as she got older became more pronounced and those behaviours became more apparently different to those of her peers. Mm. And when she got to eight, 
we made the decision that that now is the time, you know, we need to get this investigated further. We need to see if there is something there that she needs some additional support with because she was struggling socially. She was struggling at school. Um, and then when she came home, she was having some quite monumental meltdowns because she had been trying so hard to hold herself together in public and and at school. So that's that's really my start point anyway. Mm. Was it was it kind of picked up by anybody else or was it you that kind of flagged it and kind of recognized this is this is different? Yeah, it was it was very much me on my own at first. It wasn't recognized more widely within my own family even. I think that comes from the fact that diagnosed or not, there are a lot of neurodiverse people within my family and within my daughter's father's family as well. Yeah. So a lot of it was like, oh, but she's just like auntie so-and-so or she's just like granddad or she's just like, and it's like, yes, but have we looked at ourselves? <laughs> you know, perhaps, perhaps all of our behaviors don't really fit into this normal in inverted commas box either yeah so i started pushing for it when i began struggling with her behavior at home mm -hmm. and i spoke to her school about it who were very very resistant to the idea that there was anything amiss they were very clear that she was perfectly behaved at school that she was quiet that she never caused any trouble that she just sort of sat quietly and I said, well, does she join in with her peers in the playground? Yes, she has one friend. Does she join in with lessons? No, she never puts her hand up. And by this point, she was in year four. And I said, so you're telling me that in four years at school, she has never contributed in class and you don't think that's potentially an issue. Yeah. And it took a lot of persistence from me yeah. to really get past that and to get them to agree to do the referral because it has to come from the school yeah yeah absolutely did you did you think um did you go in with the kind of idea that it was going to be autism or did you have adhd in your your mind from what you said there yeah i thought i thought it was adhd yeah. um i was i was surprised when autism started being suggested and when it was suggested that she went down the ados path um, that was after the first meeting with the paediatrician that tested her, though, who spent an hour with her and said, we need to test for autism. This isn't ADHD. Right. OK, because I think both of them are um, often missing girls for exactly the same reason. You said, oh, they're so quiet. So straight away, if they're quiet, they can't be ADHD. If they're quiet, they can't be autistic. It's, you know, it's that, uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? But it, and, and the label of just shy, which I think is something you were, yeah. you were chatting about before, wasn't it, yeah. as well? Yeah. Um, so as obviously as you started going down that journey, how long did it take to get the diagnosis for your daughter? Three years in total. Um, we did have the pandemic to contend with as well. Mm. So, but but I think that's still within the realms of normality now in a post-COVID world. You're still looking at two to four years from that first referral. It is very long. There are long waits between each assessment as well. So yeah. Ava had her first assessment, the one where it was suggested that we should look towards ADOS and autism. Yeah. It was then two years before she had her speech really? and language therapy appointment. So that's a long time. And in those two years between being nearly eight and being nearly 10, yeah. that's a world of difference in terms of a child's development, their personality and the problems that they're facing as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. Did did anybody around that time, as soon as it started being slightly flagged, did did you start to adjust anything that you did or did the school kind of get on board a little bit more with the kind of the, the suspicion kind of thing? 
The school did not want to believe that Ava was autistic until the diagnosis came through. So there were no adjustments made. There was no understanding. The teachers did not want to discuss her with me at all. It was a very poor experience um, on that end. However, at home, as soon as she was put on that pathway, we decided to look into how we should treat her, assuming that she has autism. Yeah. And that way, I found for myself a lot of the frustration that I had felt as a parent towards her struggling with things that other children would find very easy became so much less because I started doing research into autism in girls specifically and started to think, okay, I can see that she's not being difficult. She just can't get past this barrier that other people can't see. And my expectations, the behavior that I expected from Ava changed. Whereas I had set the bar quite high for my behavioural standards for my older child, with Ava suddenly I thought, no, we need to accept that her best is her best. Mm. And if she's trying her best, we need to know when to sort of throw in the towel and say, Ava has had enough. Yeah. Let's yeah. stop this now. So it's a big thing with behavioural management, isn't it? The kind of the uh, adjusting our own expectations allows us to then notice the strengths rather than the weaknesses. I think that's the thing, isn't it, as well, that when your expectations are up here, they're always going to fall short. And unfortunately, that's that's one of the problems that they see in themselves, not just that they see from the parents. In fact, that they've been labelled as the naughty kid who doesn't listen or they're being defiant, not that they are struggling to comprehend, understand or process the information. So suddenly the, the kid who's getting labelled as defiant suddenly going, oh, wait, no, they're not doing it on purpose and the expectation shift. As soon as the expectation shifts, you start to notice the times that they process it more quickly, that they get it quite quickly. And they're like, oh, that was, that was nice. <laughs> that was, oh, she smashed that. Yeah, so. I think it's often, as, isn't it, sometimes as parents with the, with the problem. So obviously just personal experience. I'm a family member that at parties, she's expected to join in, partake mm. and enjoy it. She don't really want to do any of it. Um, obviously, we've spoken before about traits and stuff. And then it was kind of like an argument that she didn't want to join in. It's like, well, you should be having fun and you should be having a good time. And also, I think um, I think what we discussed earlier um, an incident recently, last weekend, actually, where we went out for a meal. We went to a new place. It was all very loud. It was exciting. You know, we were with quite a large group. She wasn't familiar with the food or the surroundings. And she managed a tiny amount of her main course. And then pudding came and it became completely overwhelming. Mm. And she shut down. Yeah. And managed to eat her pudding after about 20 minutes, but completely disassociated and ended up sitting in silence with her spoon in her hand for a good 15 minutes while she processed what was happening. Mm. Afterwards, she said that the pudding had been delicious and that she'd had a really nice meal. And I think one big thing that I've learned from Ava is that sometimes she is enjoying an event, but it doesn't look as if she's enjoying it. But that doesn't mean that she isn't getting something positive from it. And actually, yeah. I need to back off and let her enjoy it in her own way. And if that means sitting quietly and just absorbing the atmosphere and not joining in, that's that's fine. Yeah. I think it's it's really hard for any parent or any person supporting somebody. That, again, you tend to judge things based on how you perceive the world, don't you? So if I was enjoying something, this is how I'd act. So I'm assuming that if you're enjoying this, this is how you act. And that's very difficult to step into that very kind of neurodiverse world. But, and this is, we'll talk about the 
we'll go into masking a little bit in a moment. But I think um, one of the things you just mentioned there that's really worthwhile peeping being aware of, especially uh, parents and I support, I think meltdowns are now more understood related to autism. I think most people are more willing if a kid is in a supermarket having a complete meltdown, you might have more people immediately going to the kind of thought process of maybe that kid struggles, maybe that kid's got differences and therefore that's that's not a bad parenting. It could be down to this kid struggling. I don't think people are all familiar with the shutdown. Mm. I think that the meltdown versus shutdown and, and we always kind of teach this in a fight, flight, freeze, submit kind of mentality. And this is where your masking comes in. That It doesn't mean that they're okay. If they're going quiet, it, it might be that they are just absorbing and just need a few moments. But it could be that they're actually really struggling and therefore they disassociate to be able to emotionally cope. And yeah. I don't think that's, again, that isn't going to be picked up on. And, and it's the same as you said in schools that, well, which kid's going to get picked up on and constantly getting their parents called in and constantly getting their code flags, the kid who has meltdowns or the kid who has shutdowns. And it's one's disruptive and one isn't. <laughs> so it's fairly obvious which one's going to be. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it takes quite a long time as well to to recognize a proper um, autistic shutdown or sort of disassociative episode. And they are very, very distressing for the person that it's happening to. And I think that isn't understood enough that the person isn't being quiet and passive inside. They are in turmoil. They are panicking. They are frightened. Mm. And to try and push them to talk, to try and push them to join in, to try and push them to engage is really damaging in that moment yeah. because you're saying to them, you know, you're already panicked and I want you to do the thing you're panicking about, but do it more. Yeah. And the only way that I can bring Ava out of an episode like that is to back completely off and say, talk to us when you're ready and then just move the conversation with the group on, leave her on the outside of that group and let her come back to us mm. in her own time and on her own terms. Normally, fairly fast 10 15 minutes and she'll be okay again yeah but the more i push the longer that's going to go on for yeah and i say i think you see when we when we talk about things like de-escalation and stuff we tend to do it from a, a de-escalation there up here and we need to bring them down sure. we don't always look at it from there down here and we need to allow them to come up kind of thing kind of naturally so yeah um so as far as your journey of self's concerned um Obviously, when you were going through that process, I think you, you kind of spoke about it. You started to, a bit like you were saying with the family members there, they go, oh, they're just like this uncle. They're just like that auntie. And, and suddenly you started to notice some things related to yourself through the process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I never would have associated what I understood autism to be, which is the classic masculine presentation of autism. Um, but then the more I read about autism in women and the way it presents in women, the more I started to think, Actually, Ava's just like me and the ways in which Ava is like me are traits of autism. And then I started talking to my dad about what I was like when I was a child and he had lots of funny anecdotes, which all relate around hyperfixation, very special interests, things that I would start doing and still be doing six hours later. And I sort of thought that's really interesting because I think maybe that's autism. But the difference is when you have 
let's say, the classic presentation in boys. They're fascinated with wheels. They can't stop playing with wheels. They turn their trucks over and spin the wheels. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a little girl who is completely fascinated with bugs and butterflies and goes out and draws pictures of butterflies, watches butterflies, well, that's classed as normal feminine behavior. Therefore, it will not be flagged as a difference. Yeah. Even if they're doing it for six hours a day, six days a week. Yeah. So it's it's about recognizing, I think, that that these hyperfixations can look normal and they can be normal, mm. but it's about the extent to which they overtake a child or a young person's life. Yeah. So there were lots of occasions, you know, things that my dad was discussing around my special interests, but then also saying in quite a jovial way that when I was between the ages of two and four, they took me for half a dozen or so hearing tests because they thought I was deaf. And they thought I was deaf because I would be sitting playing on my own and I would be so lost in my own world that I wouldn't respond when they spoke to me. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if that was a child today, a doctor would say, we need to look at autism, but it was the 80s. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's quite common, isn't it? I think... um we we've spoken about that the kind of the interests that are specific yeah. say the um uh so going from like it's it's almost a train spotter kind of that that stereotype isn't it the train spotter yeah. stereotype but then you map that over to more feminine things and they say it isn't it isn't picked up in the same way um obviously it's worthwhile mentioning obviously there is many girls with autism out there who can get just as interested in those more masculine kind of or typically masculine kind of areas and stuff like that but it could also be ponies and as you said butterflies and maybe they focus on slightly different parts of it as well maybe i don't know whether that's a i take it do you did you see that much in your daughter as well looking back on yes but again with very age appropriate and gender appropriate occupations yeah the current hasbro my little pony series Mm -hmm. she knew all of it's really silly but by the time she was three she could tell you the whole law of the land that they live in and all of their backstories and all of their family connections and all of the loads of anecdotes about every single pony and she would draw them and she would want cuddly toys of them and she would collect the figures and she would watch the program on repeat for days and days and days and days. So it was very much in keeping with a typical three to five year old girl, Mm. but more intense. But I would say it's the intensity and it's, it's the, at the exclusion of everything else. So there were no other interests because that was her interest. And she's very much the same now. She will have a fixation that lasts maybe six to 12 months and then she will move on to something else and then she'll have another fixation. But it's always this incredible deep dive into whatever it is she's fixated on. Um, I have to say now I'm I'm sort of pleased that it's it's more things like Dungeons and Dragons and less things like My Little Ponies, but it's sort of <laughs> the extent to which she gets involved with it is the same. It's obviously the um, the museum curator side of things. Do you think that's that's your thing? Was that uh, so? History has been your kind of hyper focus. Not so much history. Uh, the natural world. Yeah. Um, and shell collecting, fossil collecting paleontology right archaeology that was that was my whole childhood uh probably up until my mid-teens when 
I don't know, you hit the teenage years and things and change for a bit. Window, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of your interests <laughs> go out of the window. Um, but but very much that was that was my thing. All of our family holidays were spent going to the Jurassic Coast down in Dorset. Mm. And I would sit with my dad on the beach from dawn until dusk, hitting rocks with a hammer and finding fossils. Mm. And I don't remember once being bored or thinking yeah. this is going on because I was completely engrossed. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, it, even yesterday, I went to Sutton-on-Sea with the family and I sat looking for shells in the sand and suddenly 90 minutes had passed and Ava had been taking photographs of me sitting with, you know, like a like a toddler, legs yeah. out in front of me, bent over looking through the sand. And so it's still it's still there. Yeah. And yeah, the museum curation is an extension of that. I love collecting. I love collections. I love working in a career that means I work with things and not people yeah. as well. So I can get really involved learning the history of the objects that I look after and how to look after them best and how to display them best. And that's the majority of my work rather yeah. than working in a busy office. So that's quite a typical autistic trait. It's the attachment to things rather than people. Um, I sort of describe that and I think you do too, that it's objects are predictable whereas people are unpredictable so that shell i always know what it's going to look like it's always going to do the same thing i understand it i can research its background it never just suddenly gets upset with me for no reason when i don't really understand <laughs> why it doesn't do what i wanted to do yeah. and i think that's why it's uh for, for many individuals um on the autistic spectrum i think it is that that preoccupation with objects well, is humans so are hard work aren't they? like we are we're difficult all of us and then again with the autism side of things it's trying to understand well why is that person upset about this particular thing I don't understand that and then there's that expectation on somebody with autism to feel the same way and, yeah. and then being described as lack of empathy or you know or you just don't care yeah. and that's not the truth at all um, so yeah, I, I can I can see why people might want to withdraw. Yeah, I don't blame them. <laughs> I feel like it myself. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe with um, going into a little bit on the the kind of masking side of things at that point, then because I think um, when we're looking at those on the autistic spectrum, you you've you've got uh, the individuals who there's some individuals who just they don't get people, they don't understand them, they don't make any sense, and therefore they don't enjoy them because it's a case of I'd get nothing from it. Why would I spend time or waste my time being sociable, which is something that I don't enjoy doing? So some individuals will disappear into their own world, be a little bit more what we might consider to be recluse and things like that. Whereas I think many individuals on the autistic spectrum, they, they generally like people, they want to be around people, they just don't always get the appropriate social rules or social norms. So then you get the two that the typical is the kind of the individual who will talk at you rather than talking with you. So they'll just come and speak and speak and speak and speak and not know when the turn taking is or not know when it's appropriate time to kind of, hey, I wanna I'm interested in what you have to say. Um, but you get the other individuals who uh, who are much better at masking it. They, they have learned the kind of rhythm of speech and the rate of speech of, of stuff like that so it, did you ever find and, and would you say for your daughter as well that you found um that you overcompensated that you learned how to do it did you logically think was it a cognitive thing that you thought how do i do this thing or was it just something you subconsciously just seemed to be able to get over a period of time i think it's something i've grown into mm. <clears throat> i think it's something that I'm good at public speaking and I think 
speaking to people is like public speaking. I apply the same rules that I would apply to standing in front of 200 people and delivering a lecture. I would apply the same rules to talking with a friend in a coffee shop. It's very, very difficult. I find it exhausting. I was very bad at it when I was younger um, and used to drink to help get over that. Certainly couldn't socialise without some kind of crutch for a very long time, probably until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And now that I can, I can do it for short snaps. So sober me can have a conversation with somebody for maybe 90 minutes, but then I need to leave. I'm then I, I run out of steam and I will actually come to a point where I'll trail off mid sentence because I just don't have the energy anymore to continue talking. Mm. One thing that I find really hard and have always found really hard is small talk. I cannot talk to hairdressers. Fortunately, I've had the same hairdresser since I was 16 and he's wonderful. And he just lets me sit in silence while he cuts my hair for me. Um, because I don't, what is the point in that? I don't find that there is any thing to be gained from the whole funny weather. Yeah. I just, I don't understand how to keep that patter going either. So after a couple of questions, I've, I've got nothing. I might ask you something really personal. And I've been told by a number of people, particularly older people, people of sort of my parents' generation, that I'm far too prying, that I don't respect personal space, that we just don't want to talk about that. And I thought, but how do I get to know you if I don't find out who you are by asking you about your life experience? Yeah. And because I will tell anybody pretty much anything because yeah. I have no shame or regrets or my life is my life. Mm -hmm. And why would I be embarrassed by it? Yeah. I guess I apply that to everybody and don't understand that perhaps people don't want to talk about mistakes they've made, yeah. bad times in their life, etc. Whereas that's that's the stuff I want to know yeah. because by understanding how somebody would react to a terrible situation, I understand them because I understand what's at their core. Otherwise, all you learn is superficial nonsense that frankly doesn't mean anything. So as far as the kind of that communication, do you, do you find it's, you said uh, about 90 minutes of conversation, but if you're talking about something you're passionate about and something that, that it is, you're able to control that conversation to a certain degree, or I don't mean in control in a negative way. I just mean it like that it's that you can just almost free flow. Is that still 90 minutes or is that more when you've got to work hard doing the kind of the back and forth chit chat, contemplating what they're saying kind of thing? I don't know. Right. And okay. I don't know because there are very few people that would share my specialist interests. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get to talk about 17th century pirates using slaves as part of their crew very often, for example, but that features in my PhD. So yeah. I would talk to somebody about that and they would look at me and go, uh-huh, yeah. sure, that's great. <laughs> okay, Alex, right, I'm going to go now. Yeah. Um, so so I don't really know. I suppose, I suppose I could talk for longer, but I would still say that after a couple of hours, I think I'd be done. Yeah. I yeah. think I'd be done. I don't know whether the, obviously the museum curator side of things, I always think of like talking to the public and stuff like that. So I didn't know whether that was something that you'd had to overcome. Yeah, that's talking at, yeah. though. That's yeah. very different. So I'm very comfortable doing lectures, giving tours, speaking about specific objects or collections, but that is in 
teacher slash lecture mode, it's not a conversation. And actually the tours that I've led where they all want to ask lots of questions and talk is great. But again, after an hour, I'm sort of, I'm done with that. Yeah, you're tired out for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tired, tired out now, thank you. Can, can I just ask a question? So you know when you when you have finished and you have had enough, what, what, how do you let people know? It, is it just get up and walk off or... Do you, is there, it like, do you have a thing where you say, right, well, I'm finished now. I, I kind of need to get off. Will, will you excuse yourself? Yeah. When I was younger, I would just leave. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I used to, particularly on, not on nights out as a teenager and in my early twenties, I was always in trouble with my friends for leaving and not mm. telling them I was going. I would go to the toilet in inverted commas. And by the time they realized I wasn't in the pub, I was at home in bed. Um, as an adult, I set myself time limits. So if I go out for dinner with a friend, I will say, I have to get a taxi at 10 p.m. And then I know that I've set myself a reasonable time and I can leave. I also don't really drink alcohol anymore at all because I always want to be able to get in a car when I'm ready and drive home. Um, but I think I've just got much better at setting my own boundaries and recognizing my own limitations and knowing that I can be really good in a social situation, say for two hours. So I will just say, uh, you know, if somebody's invited me over for a barbecue at 2 p.m., I'll say, that's great, but I'm going to need to be home by five. And I'll let them know before I go so that I don't feel anxious then about mm. wanting to leave. Yeah. An expectation for you to stay. Yeah. It's sort of, sort of it's self-management. It's learning your limitations and accepting limitations. And that, that's been quite hard to sort of say, actually, there are things that I can't do and there are boundaries that I can't push because I'm going to make it miserable for everybody, be that my family or friends or whoever. No one's going to enjoy my company if I'm feeling that I can't manage where we're, where we're at and what we're doing. I feel like Ava's really lucky to have you to be able to talk to about that because I can imagine it's not an easy thing to recognize within, <clears throat> excuse me, like yourself. And like it's taken you a long time until you're older. So at least it, it's a nice, really good thing that Ava's got you there to help with that. Like these are your boundaries, Ava. You don't have to stay. You don't have to keep an en engaging in conversation. And hopefully that, that'll help with her anxiety as she gets older. Yeah, certainly. Um, we spoke earlier around she has great difficulty having friends to stay over. She is actually a very sociable person and Ava would love to have friends to stay over and have friends to stay over regularly. All of her other friends are having sleepovers. However, when we try to have a friend to sleep over, Ava just can't manage it. We, we get to 7, 8 p.m. and I can see that Ava is just exhausted because she's been with this person for the whole day and she's done and she wants her own space and she doesn't want this person in her bedroom and the, the friend always looks completely heartbroken yeah. so what we because of course they've gone around to stay overnight at a friend's house and the friend won't speak to them so we've now sort of come to we've spoken about it and I and I said to her it's okay mm. if this is what a sleepover looks like for you if for you, it's actually that you guys watch a movie together, the movie finishes at nine and I give your friend a lift home so that the last couple of hours that you're together, you're doing something where you don't need to talk and then you're still staying there till the evening, but then we're separating you and, and it comes to an end because she struggles with things, having an ambiguous finish time. Mm -hmm. So if she doesn't know when a social thing is going to stop, that's really hard because she doesn't know how to 
manage her energy levels so that she has energy for the entire event. Well, it's that need for predictability, isn't it? It's the, uh, uh, there's a, <clears throat> a, a wonderful a variation of the triad of impairments that was created by somebody who had neurodiversity. So rather than looking at it as a, you know, difficulties of social communication, social imagination, social um, interaction, that it the need for predictability. So we all have a particular need where we want to know what's going on, but it's the level of that need that makes a difference and whether it impacts on our life. The need for motivation was the other side of it, that we all have to have motivation to do things. But a lot of us make an assumption that we should be motivated because that person wants us to. But suddenly within the autistic framework, it's a case of, well, why should that matter to me? That doesn't make any sense. So why would that motivate me to do it? And then it's just the, the split skills, the cognitive imbalance, where they may have very high levels of ability within certain areas of brain function, but very low in others. Um, and I really enjoyed or I really like that kind of way of understanding autism, that it's we're, then it shows we're all on it. Um, but I think that... That need for predictability is quite important. And you just mentioned there, that kind of knowing what's going to happen next. And sometimes knowing when I have got the line means I can better cope leading up to that particular line. Yeah, definitely. So as far as um, uh, the masking side of things concerned, then, what would you say? In, and obviously, uh, I don't know whether you want to, if, if, my opinion of masking, and maybe it's worthwhile our kind of giving our opinion each of masking and then uh, for somebody who, who regularly does it. Is that kind of the ability to kind of, well, I use, I use the analogy that many people have been through a period of severe depression, for instance, but have still managed to attend an event where maybe they had to mask and pretend to be happy. So nobody would have known that they were depressed or they were struggling. Mm -hmm. It's tiring. It's hard work. Some people seem to be able to see through that mask no matter what. Um, but you can only keep it up for a couple of hours or so, and then you start to feel significantly drained. And that's probably the closest analogy I can kind of think of for from, from myself of, of what I consider be masking to be. Hopefully, we'll see how it goes. But what about yourself? Oh, I don't as? have an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one of those. Um, with the masking side of things, from the videos I've watched and the people that I've spoke to, I did support a couple of um young adults with autism so yeah. young ladies with autism the masking side of things what i tend to find was fitting in so obviously i, d I don't want to take it away and do it gender versus gender but for women i think it's really hard for us especially in those teenagers to be able to fit into society we try and find our place our groups our people our gangs and stuff like that so uh, from what i know and who i've worked with there was a lot of um sort of friendship hopping and it was a little bit so I'm this person because I want to fit in with this social group. So there was a lot of masking there. Oh, I'm into computer games now because this group of girls like it. And it was a case of you've never played computer games before, but cool, we'll support you. That's fine. That didn't last very long. And sometimes with the masking in that sort of social friendship way, um, I found that one of the most difficult things because they were constantly trying to be somebody who they wasn't. Um, and it just kept catching up with them. So we'd get things like um, lies and, you know, untruths. And we'd have lots of horrible social situations. I'm just thinking of a particular individual that I work with, bless her. And I think she just really struggled knowing who her actual friends were and um, made her quite vulnerable vulnerable in the sense that she was so desperate to fit in and she would mask and be okay with things that she gave away money personal possessions mm. and those kinds of things so 
just from that side of things, I think the friendship of masking. So who are my friends and what sort of friends do I actually want to have? And I think that's where I've seen a, a big struggle there. I don't know if that's relatable to you at all in any sense. Yeah, I I think not. Well, you know, I say not so much now, but I would I would say for me to be comfortable, completely comfortable with a new person, it's probably three to four years. It's it's a long, long time before I stop being incredibly anxious around people. And I'm told a lot, but that's not who you are at all. You're fine. You chat to everybody. And I think, but you don't understand the cost and you don't understand how hard that actually is for me to do and how tiring and how much I overthink and how many times I nearly bail on a barbecue or a drink or a social situation because I don't think any of you like me or want to be near me. And that's me talking within the last five years. And one really big thing that's come out of my diagnosis is the understanding that I'm not failing at this stuff. This stuff is harder for me than it is for other people. Yeah, I'm not bad with people. Mm. I just don't quite understand how to relax with people. And... And it's, you know, that's going to be a lifelong thing. Um, with masking, I would say that masking is acting. Mm. You learn to act and you learn, you learn a script. You learn certain conversations that you're comfortable having, certain conversations that over time you learn that most people are comfortable happening. You can talk to most people about their parents, their pets and their kids and their jobs. Mm. And these are safe conversations that you can have with nearly any, and you can have nearly exactly the same conversation about those subjects with almost any person of any age or background that you meet. So they're nice and safe. And you might, or I might have those conversations with a certain person 20, 30 times before I'll dare try and start a conversation about anything else. Yeah because I don't know if what I'm going to say on another subject might offend them or, you know, might upset them or I might completely misread their cues or I might suddenly talk about pirates for three hours. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> so it's about sort of managing what your communication is like mm -hmm. and it is just learning to act. Yeah. And a lot of the, particularly for girls, and actually I think this one's worth mentioning, I have lots of stims that I do at home mm -hmm. that I don't do anywhere else and have never done anywhere else. And that can be finger clipping, flapping my hands, uh, whistling, making vocal tics, etc. And I never do them outside of the house unless I am extremely stressed or extremely anxious. Mm. And. Or I might, you know, do something really silly like hop up and down, squeal, you know, just really the things that you would associate with classic masculine autism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But girls learn, or many girls learn, that that is not okay in public yeah. and we just suppress it and we mm. find other things to do. I dig my nails into my palms to stop myself doing other things. Yeah. And that's a really big part. So I think for a lot of women with autism, we don't, act autistic yeah no. because we've learned not to yeah yeah then that's it yeah it's point, a really key thing definitely. It is. i think there's something you you mentioned there that i think it'd be nice to kind of draw it 
uh, towards and and as we as we draw it to a close on it you mentioned something as far as one of the benefits to diagnosis was suddenly the fact of you know understanding yourself a little bit more and being able to recognize okay this is knowing that the things that you thought were wrong just you just find them more difficult than other people it's not that you can't it's not that you're a failure it's just that yeah you're you've got a bigger mountain to climb than most what would you say the other benefits and maybe both for your as you're aware of for your daughter and for yourself of getting the diagnosis have been so i think i think there are there's some real positives for me having got to where i am in my life sort of by hook or by crook and looking back i'm able to put to bed a lot of the things that i lay in bed thinking about from 10 20 30 years ago. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why was I weird then? You know, why didn't that person like me? Why did they say I was rude? And now I can look back and say, it's okay. You did okay. You know, you still got here. And being kinder to myself has been a huge thing, giving myself far more grace than I've ever given myself. I used to give myself a really hard time and allow myself to become incredibly anxious and incredibly worked up about feeling that I wasn't able to do enough, perform enough, be enough, do things quickly enough, concentrate for long enough, etc. And now I can just say, actually, I don't have the mental energy to do that today, so I'm going to do it tomorrow or maybe next week. Maybe never. We'll see. I love that. <laughs> but it's but it's but it's such a weight off. And also for me, throughout my life, I have been ignored by doctors, pushed around from doctor to doctor regarding mental health issues. I had a list of diagnoses as long as your arm for mental health conditions. And I was able to go back to my doctor last year and say, I want to review these because I don't think most of these are right. And I think we need to get these scratched off my medical record because I don't think I have half of these. I don't have OCD. I'm autistic. I don't have panic disorder. I'm autistic. So there's a whole weight off there as well. I'm not this huge list of conflicting um, diagnoses. It's just one. And the one has all of the others that pull into it. Yeah. And so again, it's about being kinder to yourself. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not a failure because I have anxiety problems. I have anxiety problems because I'm autistic. And that's just great. So for me, it's been life-changing on a very personal level because it has allowed me to be kinder to myself, really for the first time in my life. I'm 40 years old and I'm only just accepting that this is just the way I'm made. And it doesn't matter what medication I take, what therapies I try, my brain is not going to change how it works because this is how it works. And for Ava to have that diagnosis so much younger, before she started secondary school, she's able to go into secondary school with the support that she needs to do well. I did atrociously at secondary school because I spent the whole time trying to be a good, well, not a good teenager, but trying to be <laughs> a teenager and have the social side of things, which I always felt were collapsing in on me and were massively overwhelming. So schoolwork went out of the window completely. Whereas for Ava, she has support. She has support workers. She has counsellors she can talk to. She has a safe, quiet space within the school that she goes to that her and other neurodiverse young people can go to when they need time out, even in the middle of lessons if they need it. And this 
allows her to do well at school. And her first year came to an end in July and her school report is just, she's like a different child to the child Mm. she was two years ago because she understands now how to get the best out of herself. And Mm. she's surrounded by teachers that want that for her. So it is hugely, hugely beneficial. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Really good. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy for her. I'm, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, me too. Me too. Absolutely. And 40s are supposed to be the best years of your life. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> so um, you've already kind of mentioned the some of the other labels that you'd got, and and so I, I'm not going to go back into that. But I think it is worthwhile kind of just drawing attention to that. I think it is very easy to get lots of different labels, and sometimes kind of it's a keeping exploring, and suddenly one then. It does supports the others. Um, we always want to try and within our podcasts and, and within the values of Able Training that um, whether it be dementia or whether it be autism or whether it be philological spectrum disorder, wherever it is, I think it's always easy to focus on the negatives of the condition. And obviously, especially with, with something like autism, you know, it isn't curable. It's, it's not a, con- a condition or it's not a... Um, uh, an issue in the way we may think it's a difference in the way our brain works. So it's not going to be kind of based on diet or medication that's necessarily going to solve it. So I think it's always worthwhile. What what would you say are the positives to being autistic from your point of view? Okay. I think that I see things around me that other people don't see. Mm-hmm. Um because I'm hypervigilant, which a lot of people might put down to being a negative, but you know, I don't think it is. Say I go for a walk in the countryside, which I do a lot. I see every different species of grass and plant and flower, and I know them all. I know all of their names. I know all of the different butterflies, the bugs, the birds. I can recognize all of the bird songs. I can hear bats if I go for a walk at dusk. There are a thousand wonderful, incredible things in the world around us that if I wasn't autistic, I wouldn't even notice. I wouldn't see this stuff. And even if I did, I wouldn't care. Mm. And I can't imagine a world so bland and so unenriched by knowing what's around you and valuing what's around you. So for me, and I know it's because the natural world is my special interest, but for me, yesterday at the beach, I was able to tell my five-year-old son the different species of shell that he was picking up. I could tell him how old the examples were, like, oh, this one was just a baby or this one was probably three to five years old. Or, And it's being able to impart that knowledge Mm. to my children to enrich their worlds as well and that's just a tiny part of it you know I'm able to hyper focus on projects so that I can decide to do a PhD in my spare time because it interests me not for any sort of academic accolade just sort of for something to do (laughs) and it's not necessarily because I'm incredibly intelligent it's because I have that focus and I can say this is the subject I'm going to read about and I can read about it for six years straight so again, it's, it gives you an edge in a lot of things if you know how to apply it and if you choose to apply it. And some people might not do, but it's there if you want it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's nice for putting it. There's a, um, I think there's a lot of people out there probably think autism is quite a 
a modern thing in some ways, uh, but it's just we've now got a label for it. It was always there. And I think I remember reading in one place that um, if it hadn't been for autistic individuals, we wouldn't have survived as a species because they're the ones hearing the predator coming and out there hunting and gathering and checking yep. for stuff. We would have been in the, in the cave having a chat. Um, <laughs> talking about the weather. Talking about the weather and, and, and making small talk that doesn't really matter to anybody. So, And I always kind of love that, that kind of analogy that, yeah, there is... Um, some things that people engage with that if you take that out of them if you take if as you say how much time do people spend kind of engaging in just meeting up for a coffee and and just spending that kind of and, and suddenly that doesn't mean anything it doesn't matter then suddenly the time you're taking for that you're suddenly putting that time into something that really interests you and really fascinates you or to engage in a, a different aspect of life is is incredibly enriching rather than necessarily uh, a deficit it is a it is a positive yeah. yeah definitely okay um did you have anything you wanted to Kind of add in or questions or anything like that? Oh, a thousand, but we'll, <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready, we can go for a G&T and <laughs> do that instead. No, just, um, I just think it's really valuable, especially with the female and girl side of it, because I think there's a lot of still, again, out there, undiagnosed and people not really knowing who they are and where to go with it. Um, we know that autism within girls at the moment, there's a big proportion as well. Um, struggling with identity and gender and those sorts of things. So I definitely think that's something, I think this podcast will help a little bit in in the sense of, well, you are who you are and be who you need to be. And I think that's a really positive thing. So non-binary and transgender in particular, um, but seems to be more prevalent in autistic girls and women rather than males. So yeah. The statistics are 67% of people who identify as autistic have some kind of gender dysphoria my daughter is one of them although she goes by daughter to me yeah. she uses they them pronouns with her friends we're in the process of waiting for Ava to decide whether she goes by Ava or Ash on a permanent basis she uses Ash with friends and they them Ava at home which is her birth name and she her and that's her decision yeah. at, at the moment and uh, so, so yeah there is as, as you've said there's a whole world of confusion for people. I think personally, I would expect, suspect a lot of it comes from the changes to the female body going through puberty are far more noticeable than the changes to the male body, which stays the basic same shape and just not feeling comfortable in your own skin and not, yeah. you know, not knowing how to reconcile that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think I think it's a it's a good topic of uh, a topic and point at uh, talking point definitely, and it's something that I keep coming across on as well. So um, obviously, with our course going forward, it is it is mentioned in there as well. Yeah. So yeah, 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 definitely. Mm. I think um, I think I think for many people, not not feeling as you said, using the term comfortable in your own skin, but recognizing your own identity and recognizing that whoever you are and however you present is okay and um, whether that be related to gender so some people are going to dramatically try and seek out well what is right for me what does work okay for me um, and I think this is this is sometimes a downside of any label to some degree or another that I desperately need a label because I want to fit into a box and and we like to categorize in this world because it's the way we learn um, but I don't think we fit into boxes very well I think uh, we kind of get all a bit complicated and confusing at that point but yeah definitely yeah. 
Um, well, we'll we'll draw it to a close from there. Thank you so much for your for your time today, and and I think a lot of people out there will find the stuff that we spoke about today really useful and engaging and and yeah. stuff. Oh, so good. yeah, really appreciate your time. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for joining us, uh, and obviously we'll be back with you next time. Cheers. <laughs>